0: My name is Avery, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm real grateful to be here tonight. Uh, Another thing, everybody was saying, are you nervous? Are you nervous? And people were coming up giving me hugs. And the hugs made me just feel so much better. I started to realize I was in a room full of all of my friends. And it was so funny. uh, One of them said, I just seen Helen outside. And I said, no, I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Helen, no, I love Helen. I work with Helen and Darwin in the central office. And before I left, I told them, I said, okay, I want to make sure you guys are going to be here. And Darwin said, I'd be sure to recognize them because they'd be the one with the rotten vegetables. (laughs) And somebody mentioned tomatoes. And I was like... (laughs) So, I'm just real grateful to be here and grateful to be sober. And working at the office, I notice all these groups have all these names. Then We have names after our experience, after our steps, after our traditions. We have the names after different portions in the big book, and sometimes I think, Well, they sure didn't give that a lot of thought 30 years ago. Somebody just sit and had a group conscious and said, Well, how about the Cascade Group, you know? But now I'm beginning to think that the reason why they named it the Cascade Group was so we wouldn't forget it.
1: Okay? Because
0: a lot of these groups that have all these names, when they come into the office, I ask them, the first thing I have to ask them is, what's the name of your group, in order to uh, pull up their account on the computer? And I am so surprised that people who don't know the name of their group.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, some of them have to call a friend.
1: <laughs> you
0: know, sometimes I want to give them 50-50, you know. <laughs> So they really, they really don't know the name of their group. They, they'll stop and say, wait a minute, let me think about it. Um, um, and they have to look in the meeting schedule sometime to find out what's the name of their group. So uh, one girl came in the office one day, and the first thing I asked her, what's the name of your group? And right away she said, throwing together said, oh, what a wonderful name for a group. And she agreed. The only problem was it wasn't the name of her group. <laughs> I don't think it's the name of anybody's group. <laughs> yet. But anyway, when we found out it wasn't the name of her group, I, I asked her, I said, how did you come up with that name? <laughs> That's not the name of your group. She said, well, I really think that that's what I wanted it to be, and group conscience, group conscience voted against it. (laughs) But, you know, that's the type of fun that I have in the central office, okay? It's, you know, I really love working in the central office because I'm always, I'm always laughing at some of the things that happen. And one girl came into the office, and anybody who's been in the office where we work, we, we work on the 13th floor. That's where the office is, in the calendar building, where they have security downstairs. And a girl came in one day, and she went to security, and she told security that she wanted
1: chips. <laughs> well, of
0: course, he sent her down to the snack machine. <laughs> And she was
1: standing
0: there in front of the snack machine, so happened UPS seeing her and knew what she was talking about and sent her up to our office.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, so, but we have really come of age to the point where people, people know that we are out there. Now, now, a lot of them don't know what we do. They don't know why we're out there, but they know we're there. Uh, For example, one person wrote a two-page letter, sent in a two-page letter, and they were reporting their neighbors for being alcoholics. (laughs) Two pages. They went into details with the behavior and what they were doing, and they went on to tell us that, you know, we didn't just have to take their word for it, that they were convinced that if we just came out to investigate... (laughs) that their accusations would be confirmed. Well, I wanted to write back and say, but we don't do that. But I couldn't because they said, they wrote at the end of the letter that they wished to remain anonymous because they didn't want their neighbors to know that they reported them. I, I got sober in Chicago. And I came into the program in, uh, gen- well, I actually became into the program in 1979 in Chicago, Illinois.
1: I, I'd like to. <laughs>
0: you mean all this time you haven't heard me? <laughs> I came in in 1979 in Chicago.
1: <laughs>
0: I see this is going to be a fun evening.
1: <laughs> but I can deal with it. <laughs>
0: I'm going to talk about the program of recovery. I'm going to talk about the sex. And I may talk about my grandchildren. (laughs) (laughs) But I want everybody to know that when I'm talking, I'm sharing how it happened with me and what helped me. I don't want anybody to think that I'm preaching because I was at a conference once and I was standing in the conference. I was actually standing up and a girl came back and I asked her, I was really excited about the speaker and enjoying the speaker. And she said, I asked her, I said, she likes the speaker. She said, oh, he's all right, but I went to the restroom and I missed his story. And when I came out, he was preaching. I said, girl, that's the program of recovery. You missed his drunk a <laughs> So it's so funny because I, sent in, uh, I was asked to send in a tape for another conference. And I sent my tape in. And a uh, few weeks later, I heard from them. And what they said is, Avery, we really liked what we heard but we'd like to hear more of you. And I thought, more of me? What do you mean? They said, well, what you sent us was the steps, and we want to hear your story. <laughs> and I thought, oh. And so it, it's gotten to the point where I think my log got less and less And I just, I think, during that tape, I just zoomed right into recovery and, you know, the drunk log was gone. I listened to it and I heard it. So it's so funny. I told her, well, you may have to get somebody else to speak because that's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) But I will try to qualify myself and let everybody know that I did drink. (laughs) And I drank as much as everybody else, and probably more than some of you. (laughs) When I first realized that uh, I had a drinking problem, I had probably had a drinking problem long before I knew it. I didn't know a lot about alcoholism, but I did know that my mother and my father were both they both had a drinking problem? I did know that, and I I wasn't sure what it was. I I didn't know a lot about alcoholism, but my father died from alcoholism, uh, before, right before I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was living with me at the time. And Dad was sick, and the doctors had already told him that if he didn't stop li- if he didn't stop drinking, he would only have about six months to live and it frightened him for a while but it didn't last and eventually he started back to drink and in about 6 months alcohol took him out and uh... I, I never could understand it, I never could understand how could he go back to drinking knowing what he knew my father was living with me at the time right after my father died I had met a guy we started dating during the time my father was actually in the hospital. And when my father passed, he moved in with me. And I was glad that he did because I had never lived by myself. I had been married and I was divorced. And my father moved in because I, I really didn't want to live by myself at the time. So. When we were living together, life was really good, I thought. I drank and he drank. And we enjoyed drinking together. After about a year, something happened. And I used to always wonder whether something happened to him because I enjoyed being with him so much. I really cared about him. And something did happen. He was diagnosed with something called multiple myeloma and it was uh, a terminal cancer. When he was diagnosed, you know, at first we didn't know what was wrong and I would go up to the hospital and we were just trying to figure out what was wrong with him because he, was, he wasn't he was walking and it, it was progressing to the point where one day I came to the hospital and he was just walking around the walls because he told me he was losing feeling in his legs. Well, it would get worse after that. Once we found out what the problem was, he was uh, going in for x-rays one day, and the doctor left his chart in his lap, and that's when he looked through his chart and realized that they had given him three years to live. Well, he called me right away, and I went down to the hospital to talk to him, about the situation. And uh, we both talked to the doctor, and he said, you know, he just told us like it was. It may be more and it may be less. And I thought I took it pretty well. You know, I thought I said all the right things, and I went on to tell him, well, only God knows how much time we have left. All this time they couldn't find out what was wrong with you. How can they tell you how much time you have left? And I thought I said all the right things, and he felt better. I went home that evening, and I'll never forget, it was St. Patrick's Day. And I I bought me a half pint and a six-pack. Sure, I had gotten some bad news, but it wasn't unusual for me to buy a half pint and a six-pack. I sat at my bar, and I started to drink it. And every time I sat at the bar to drink, I'd have this plan to stay at home and drink. And about the second half pint, my mind would change. It never fell. My mind changed that night and it was about two o'clock in the morning. I decided I wanted to go out. I got in my car and I started to drive to the club. My sister owned a nightclub in Chicago. So I felt comfortable leaving the house at 2 o'clock in the morning to go to the club. It didn't normally close to about 5 o'clock. As I was driving to the club, I remember these guys were passing by and they started to flirt. So I flirted back and I said, follow me.
1: <laughs> right into
0: the trunk of this man's car. <clears throat>
1: So there we were,
0: the police was called and I was drunk. And the police knew I was drunk, but they asked him, you know, they found out I had insurance and everything. And they asked him if, you know, I made sure I exchanged information with him. If it was okay with him, they wouldn't arrest me for driving under influence because I had insurance and they gave me a ticket for following too close and he agreed. I proceeded to the club.
1: <laughs>
0: I drank until five. It, it, it was after five o'clock because if the club closed at five, I didn't normally leave till six. <laughs> when I left the club, I was so drunk that for a long time, I tried to get in the wrong car.
1: <laughs> and I
0: didn't realize it was my car. It wasn't my car. When I finally got in my car, I was on my way to the freeway when I was stopped by the police. And he went over the loudspeaker and asked me if I'd pull over to the side. I was so drunk, I pulled over to the white line or the (laughs) center line or whatever.
1: He came up to the car and he
0: asked me my license I looked I I looked all through my purse I couldn't find my license and I was shuffling things trying to find my license and I forgot they already had my license (laughs) (laughs) and finally he he noticed the ticket laying on the side (laughs) he picked the ticket up and he looked at it and he said wait a minute you just had an accident a few hours ago get out the car Well, you know, at this point, I'm thinking the procedure was you get a ticket and you get to proceed on. (laughs) So I said, no, I'm not getting out the car. I said, now, if you need to write me a ticket, write me a ticket and let me go. But I'm not getting out the car. And he insisted that I get out the car.
1: (laughs) He opened the door
0: and proceeded to pull me out the car. And at that point, everything that was going on with me came out on that policeman that night. Needless to say, I went to jail. (laughs) While I was in jail, my uncle picked me up the next day. While I was in jail, I remember thinking that I didn't even know you could get arrested for something like this. I didn't know you could get arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol. I did it all the time. (laughs) But I remember thinking that it must be serious and I never wanted it to happen again. I was in jail all night and my uncle picked me up the next day and I remember thinking this will never happen to me again. I found out that you could actually go to jail and it scared me and when I went to court my uh, my public defender told me, uh, you know, I thought that maybe I'd get off. This was my first time being arrested and all, and I thought I'd get off and uh, it wouldn't be a big deal and that maybe they wouldn't suspend my license. Well, the public defender went back and talked to the judge and the police officer, and when he came back, he threw this folder in my lap and said, You know what? look at this report. He said, you better plead guilty and hope that they don't send you to jail. Look at this report. Look at what you did. I opened up the report and I started reading the report and I did not believe that I did all the things they said I did. It took me a year in Alcoholics Anonymous before I believed that I did the things they said I did. (laughs) I remember I had a resentment. I was sitting in a meeting and I was still talking about how these policemen had lied on me. And, and the cheers were like in a circle. And this girl pointed at me. And you, in the green, you probably did all those things they said you did. That was the first time I ever thought, could I have actually did that stuff? I was walking to my car in a James thinking, could I really have done what they said I did? And all of a sudden, I remember doing some of it. I remember they said I, I was falling continuously. And it, all of a sudden, I remembered falling. Because I remember thinking, oh, so they think I'm drunk, huh? I'll show em. <laughs> And that's when I accepted the fact that the other things they said I did. They said I kicked them, I hit them with my purse, It was just, you know,
1: it was beyond
0: my imagination. You know, some of the things they said I did, I don't even (laughs) want (laughs) to (laughs) say.
1: I've
0: been sober for 19 years, and I still don't want to (laughs) say. So, you know, it must have been pretty bad. (laughs) But finally, I believed that I had did the things they said. And all of a sudden, I had such gratitude that they stopped me before I got on the expressway if I was that drunk, because they probably saved my life. I didn't stop drinking, though. I still didn't know I had a problem. And things got worse. The accidents got worse. Because like I said, every time I drank, my man would change. And I was always in my car. Either I was going somewhere to get another drink, or I was going to the club. As a result, I was having accidents. I was getting—I I didn't get arrested anymore. And I was driving on this bogus license I had fixed up since I didn't have a license now. <laughs> and I—I uh, I was having so many accidents that one time I tried to put two accidents on one report because before I could report one accident I had another one. (laughs) And the insurance company asked me, how could you have gotten hit on both sides? (laughs) One time I was so lost in my own neighborhood trying to go to get a drink. And I was lost in back of the hospital. You know, hospitals can be pretty confusing, especially when you're drunk. And I was lost in back of the hospital, and I was with my neighbor. We were going to get a drink, and I couldn't find my way out of the hospital area. And all of a sudden, this lady was coming out. She was just getting out the hospital, and she was all bandaged up, had an arm in a sling. And there was two guys helping her to the car. And here I come down the street. I don't remember seeing these people even today. Only thing I remember is seeing the door on my hood, the door of their car. I was so drunk that I didn't even talk when the police came. I let my neighbor do all the talking. Because I remember the last time I talked to the police. <laughs> they probably thought she was driving, because I didn't say nothing. But when it came time for me to file this accident report, I didn't remember nothing, neither. And when I was trying to tell the insurance agent what happened, he was confused. He, he said, how could you have been going down that way on that street? That's a one-way street. I said, well, maybe I was going the other way. And I was so confused about this accident, finally he asked me, are you sure you were driving that night? I said, wait just a minute, let me call you back. I had to call my neighbor and ask her what happened. I didn't know. And the people were suing me for personal injury. They said I hit them. And I had to ask her,
1: did I hit those people last night?
0: Because I didn't know. And she said, no, girl, but you would (laughs)
1: have.
0: If they wouldn't have jumped on the hood of their car.
1: (laughs) It was bad.
0: And it got worse. I was having so many accidents that I called my sister lived in Atlanta at the time and I called my sister, I was crying on my sister's shoulder about it, and my sister said, girl, it seems like that car is causing you a lot of problems. (laughs) Why don't you sell the car? Needless to say, I didn't want to talk to her anymore. (laughs) But it didn't get any any better. It progressed, and it got worse. Eventually, it started to to affect my job. I'd been working for a a large corporation for about 10 years at the time, and I started having problems on the job. And the problem was, I couldn't get to the job.
1: (laughs) At one time,
0: I used to be able to go to work and it got so bad that I could only get to the end of the bed and then I'd fall back over, you know, and that was the end of that. They had given me a warning. And I just knew I'd do better. And I I did for a while. And then I took that first drink. And this particular week, I had called in sick every day. On my job, you had to call in every day. You couldn't just call and say, I'm going to be sick for a week.
1: <laughs> I hated
0: that. I, I, I wanted it to be where you could call and say, I'm going to be sick for a week. <laughs> but I had to call in every day. But the problem with that was Thursday I called and said I felt much better and I would be in Friday. And I took a drink. I couldn't call in and say I was sick because I had told him I was well. (laughs) And when I woke up and I had missed work, I didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden it hit me, I know what I'll do. If only I can get in in a hospital. If I can call him and tell him I'm in a hospital, that'll be good enough. (laughs) So I looked through the yellow pages to see if I could get in a hospital. I couldn't think of any hospital I could get into without really being sick except maybe an alcohol treatment center. So I called the alcohol treatment center and told them that I wanted to come in and, you know, uh, they didn't know the plan. (laughs) So the lady was willing to take me in, you know. She was willing to take me in right in. And I thought, wait a minute, lady. I can't go into a treatment center today. This is Friday. I got business to take care of. <laughs> I'll come in Monday. She said, how about Sunday? And I said, okay, I can make it in Sunday. So Sunday, that Sunday, I signed myself into the alcohol treatment center. And then I went through... Uh, The medical department, the medical department of my company, because they had to keep it confidential. They couldn't tell anybody why I was in the hospital. So all they would know is that I was in the hospital. And once they knew I was in the hospital, that was it. I was leaving. (laughs) (laughs) So I was taking care of all this business because I came in, you know, on a Sunday, everybody was off on their uh, pass, and I didn't get to talk to a counselor or anything. And by Tuesday, when I was able to talk to a counselor, I had all my business taken care of, and I was ready to go. But now it's time for me to talk to the counselor. So I went into to the counselor, and the counselor said, Well, Avery, what do you, what seemed to be the problem? I said, Well, you know what, really, there is no problem.
1: <laughs>
0: I was having a few problems at first, and I was a little hasty. I do not need to be in a place like this. (laughs) He was like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Avery, rarely do people get in here by mistake or accident. (laughs) If you're here, chances are you're in the right place. Never did I think I was in the right place. He said, well, I tell you what, if you did have a problem with alcohol, what what you think caused your problem? So, of course, I went and told him about my boyfriend, mm-hmm. how he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and after his, he was diagnosed, I just went totally mad, and this is what caused my alcoholism. And I told him the whole story. I saw it from the beginning and got really into it, you know. And he sat and smoked his pipe and he listened. And I just knew he would say, Avery, I see why you ended up in a place like this. You've been through a lot. But instead he said, Avery, if you think that, you're probably saying you had a drinking problem long before you met this man. And I did think that. Because I really believed that If I was an alcoholic, I believed that's what caused it. But when I thought back, I had my worst accident before I even met him. I had a head-on collision going down that same street where I ha- had the accident and where I was arrested. I was always on that street. And I had a head-on collision. I went to sleep at the wheel. And when I woke up, a car was coming straight at me. And he seen me at the same time I seen him. And we both turned and got in my lane.
1: <laughs>
0: it was before I even met him. And I, I could have been killed that night. I was totally asleep. So the counselor gave me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he told me to go to my room and read the first 164 pages. And when I took the big book to my room and I started reading the big book, all of a sudden I started to cry. I was just so glad to know that there was something wrong with me and that there was a solution. But just to know that it was something wrong with me And tears came to my eyes. And I was 12 steps by the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I knew now that I had a drinking problem. And I did that 28-day program. And I remember thinking after doing that 28-day program, they told me I had to make AA meetings after I got out. They told me all the things I needed to do. And I remember thinking, what fool would drink after knowing everything that I know now? What idiot would go out there and take a drink? After learning all that I had learned in 28 days, (laughs) I got out on, it was during the weekend of Thanksgiving. And I was a little afraid that I may drink during the Christmas holidays, but I didn't. I didn't drink during the Christmas holidays. I was out about three months, and I took my first drink. It was going to lead me into drinking for three years in the program of alcoholism. I drank, and I made me in. and I couldn't stop drinking. I kept coming back though, because they told me to keep coming back. If I didn't do anything else right, I got that one. (laughs) I kept coming back. I never went to a meeting drunk. Some people didn't even know I was still drinking, because they always seen me, so they didn't know I was still drinking. And sometimes I walk into a meeting and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, you've been around for a while now, haven't you? Yeah. And then I'd walk in that meeting and I'd pray, and I'd ask God, please help me talk about what I need to talk about. And I'd share it in a meeting that I had drank. And I talked about it when I didn't want to talk about it. Because I felt like if I ever stopped talking about it, that the only thing I had was my honesty. And if I lost that, I felt like I would be lost. So I'd talk about it. Sometimes I'd go to a different meeting where nobody had ever seen me to talk about it. (laughs) One time I thought I went to a men's meeting by mistake. (laughs) And I started crying in the men's meeting, and they didn't know what to do.
1: (laughs) It was like... (laughs)
0: My nose started to run. I was holding my head down because I didn't want anybody to see me crying. And so I was holding my head down so I couldn't see the napkins on the table. And none of them knew what to do. And all of a sudden, a woman walked in the door. And right away, she just picked up the napkin and gave me a a napkin. (laughs) I was so glad to see her. Not only was my nose running, but I knew it wasn't a men's meal. (laughs) But I continued to talk about it. During that time, my boyfriend had just got out. He had gotten out of the hospital, and that was another thing. We drank a lot together. And now, since he had gotten in the position where he was paralyzed from his illness, he still drank a lot in the car. And so, since he couldn't go get the drink, who was going to get the drink? Me. And then I'd sit in the car and try not to drink. I was still trying to hang out at the places I used to drink at, but I wanted to order juice. And I remember this guy... He used to always, he had about 25 years sobriety and he used to, whenever he commented, he'd jump straight up on his feet and he'd say, if ever I'm anywhere and I feel uncomfortable, one minute later, I've been somewhere else for 59 seconds. (laughs) He always said that. And when he said it, he jumped to his feet and said
1: it. <laughs> and one
0: time he said it, it was different. Because I heard it. For the first time I heard it. And I was sitting in that car with him one day. And we had just got to drink. And I was sitting in front of my door trying not to drink. And all of a sudden I heard that guy. If ever I'm anywhere and I feel uncomfortable, one minute later, I've been somewhere else for 59 seconds. I got out of that car so fast, I didn't even close the door. (laughs) He was calling me on the car phone.
1: What happened?
0: And all I said was, I felt uncomfortable. I got in bed. I woke up the next morning and I was sober, I said, it won't. <laughs> things like that continued to happen. Some things changed in me and now I realized when I got out of treatment and I thought I knew all that I knew and I couldn't have a problem, it didn't matter what I knew. Self-knowledge meant nothing, absolutely nothing. Bill W. knew. Lois knew. They knew for a long time. Self-knowledge meant absolutely nothing. I was finally beginning to take my first step. But I found out something about the first step. It was more than admitting that I was powerless over alcohol. I had to admit it in my innermost being because it was something different when I admitted it in my innermost being because then I would be able to do what I knew. That was the difference. All of a sudden, I started to do what I knew. My sister used to come in town from Atlanta. And she, when she came in town, she had everything to drink, anything I wanted, she had it. She had, they owned a large nightclub here in Atlanta. And she'd bring the drinks and whatever else she'd bring. And then, I'd always ask her, girl, where you going to be? I wanted to catch up with her, because she had all the money and all the drinks. And I'll never forget one Christmas she came into town and she called and I didn't ask her where she was going to be. Something was different. Instead, I told her where I was going to be. I told her I was going to be at the AA Christmas party and that she was welcome to come. And she showed up too.
1: <laughs>
0: and it let me know it wasn't her. It was me. I remember one day I thought about my boyfriend, and I thought, I just can't stop spending time with him. After all, the doctor had given him three years to live. I just can't stop seeing him, because I don't know how long he has left. And one day it hit me. If I keep this up, I don't know how long I have left. I had to be willing to get rid of anything that stood in the way of my sobriety. Sometime I'd go to an AA function, like this, it'll be over in, uh, at ten o'clock or something like that. i get home, I'm all dressed up. My first thought was, hmm, it's still early. <laughs> And I'd wake up drunk. One day I got home, and I remember I was dressed up after AA function, and I looked at the clock, and I thought, hmm, it's still early. And then the next thing I thought, wait a minute, every time I have that thought, I wake up drunk. I ripped those clothes off and jumped in the bed, and I woke up sober. I said, it worked! I started identifying the thinking that would get me drunk I stopped going to bars ordering well I never would order orange juice but that's what I went there for
1: <laughs>
0: never ordered one I'd always go to order orange juice you'd think at least I'd order one orange juice and then follow it with the crown Royal and coke I'd go there to order orange juice and order Heineggen. <laughs> Never even ordered orange juice. Soon as I sat at the bar, it seemed like my man would change.
1: <laughs>
0: I stopped going to the bar. And so I had to change all those things. And it's so funny, I went to the International Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that guy, I was in Minneapolis, and that guy who used to always say, whenever I'm anywhere and I feel uncomfortable, <laughs> One minute later, I'd been somewhere else for 59 seconds. I was sitting in this thick and I looked behind me, and who was back there but him? I told my husband,
1: that's that guy, that's him, that's him.
0: And it's so funny, when they did the sobriety count, I was just waiting, I said, he must have 30 years. He stood up, or sit down at 46 years. I don't know why I thought he had 30. I've almost got 20 myself. 46 years. And I was able to tell him what he said and how much it meant to me. He had about 25 years, and he had a message for a newcomer. And when I told him, he was getting through the crowd, wait a minute, let me get a hug. And we were both making it to each other so we could get a hug, and it was the best feeling. Finally, I didn't drink. And I didn't know I had taken my last drink because I had drank for three years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember sitting in a meeting, and one thing I'm really glad that the counselor really cleared up for me is that I did not drink because my boyfriend was diagnosed with a terminal illness. That was important for me to know. Because when he did pass, I didn't have a reason to drink. Because I knew that's not why I drank. I was able to take an AA member with me to the funeral. And I didn't have to drink about it. And I remember thinking, if I don't have to drink about this, I don't have to drink about anything. A short time later, my job wanted to transfer me to Houston, Texas. And it shocked me that I agreed to go. I had never moved. I didn't change addresses, especially cities and states. As far as I went was down 79th Street. (laughs) (laughs) And when my job transferred, I decided I'd go with the company. And I remember sitting in this women's meeting and I was talking about all the things that was going wrong, how I couldn't sell my house, and everything was going wrong, nothing was going right. And this is the same women's meeting that so often I felt comfortable going in talking about when I had drank. A lot of times I didn't want to talk about my drinking in the general population. i go to the women's meeting. I felt comfortable there. And I'd tell them I drank in the Bahamas, I drank on a uh, boat, And, you know, they knew everywhere I had drank. And this particular day, I said in this meeting, I was getting ready to uh, transfer to Houston, Texas. And I was just talking about all the things that was going wrong and nothing was going right. And all of a sudden, I said, wait a minute. Something is going right. I haven't had a drink today. Something's going right. And this lady, she tore a page out of a Jet magazine, and it was a model slipping a half pint of Smirnoff in her purse. I think it was advertising Smirnoff. And she wrote on it, Avery, she don't have to drink no more. And she folded it up and passed it to me, and I read it. And I didn't know what she meant at the time because I didn't know I had taken my last drink, but she knew. I was able to go back to Chicago. I was about 11 years sober. And I asked that lady, how did you know? She said, it must have been God inspired. She knew. I moved to Houston, Texas. I had six months sobriety. And like I say, I was able to do what I knew now, the same way uh, Bill W. had six months sobriety. And when he finally did what he already knew, he was standing in the Mayflower Hotel. And he had a choice. He could either go in the bar or he could go to the church directory. And for the first time with six months sobriety, he could do what he knew. And he went to the church directory and the rest is history. So I had six months sobriety. And if I didn't know anything else, I knew that I couldn't drink. I moved to Houston. I didn't know anybody. But somebody gave me a contact name and said, call this number when you get there. And that's why today I believe in contact names. Because I called that number when I got to Houston. And it was like I had friends already there. The guy had he had about 25 years sobriety. He picked me up introduced me and I mean he made meetings with me he introduced me to people he introduced me to the young lady who was going to be my sponsor and I want to tell you something about my sponsors I have to tell you something about my sponsors I never asked anybody to sponsor me that sponsored me they just did I had a sponsor in Chicago and he just reached out to me i was going to the meetings i wasn't even introducing myself i was leaving right after the lord's prayer and he called me one day i was halfway down the street and he was the only person that i was able to go to when i had taken a drink and say it happened again this person my contact person he sponsored me when i moved to houston i hadn't been there long before i know it he had me going into prison systems We were going into the women's penitentiary, and it was a three-hour drive one way. Every month we would go, and one day, finally he just said, okay, that's your baby. (laughs) I went for five years, every month. I took part in my fifth step on one of those trips. Gatesville Penitentiary. He sponsored me. I didn't even know it was sponsorship. I just figured it out not too long ago. (laughs) (laughs) I was standing at a central office seminar, and I was standing there, and we were talking about how important sponsors were and that that's why sometimes people aren't involved in service. It's the same thing Bill W. said. A lot of people don't stay when they come into Alcoholics Anonymous And it's not always the fault of the newcomer. Sometimes they may not get the right sponsorship or not enough of it. And so I'm standing out there trying to figure out how did I get into service. I couldn't figure out how I had gotten into service. I just remember it always was. I didn't remember how. And then I thought about him. And when I started going into the penitentiary, I was only six months sober. I didn't even know it was service. (laughs) I was just doing what he he did. (laughs) I didn't even know it was service. He didn't ask me. I went for five years. And I'm sure it had a lot to do with my sobriety today because I was in service. My other sponsor, We were sitting in, the the young lady he introduced me to, we became best friends. She reached out to me. She used to drive across town to see me, because we lived lived far away, and she used to come. And when she came, she planned to spend the whole day, because we lived that far away. We'd have lunch, we'd sit in the jacuzzi, we'd sit outside in the jacuzzi in February. She was from Gary, Indiana, and I was from Chicago. And we were thinking about how how good things were and that we were able to sit in the jacuzzi in February. She always came to see me. She reached out to me. And one day, when we were sitting in the jacuzzi, she looked at me and she asked me, Avery, have you ever worked step four and five? I said, No. She said, Why not? I said, Because I don't know how. Now, this young lady had six months more sobriety than I had. I must have had maybe about two years at the time, and she had two years, six months. When I told her I didn't know how, she said, well, you're going to find out how. Because next week, we're going on a retreat, and you're going to work your fourth and fifth step. This is why I talk about the steps so much. Because I have no doubt in my mind that if it wasn't for somebody taking me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, you would be listening to somebody else's story. Because she didn't even know how crazy I was. so I retreat, retreating, I did my fourth and fifth step. And I remember I was sitting out in the courtyard, and she came out, and I was looking really disappointed. And she said, what's wrong? I said, I thought you're supposed to feel better after this. (laughs) I don't feel better. I feel worse. And furthermore, I'm never going to work step six. (laughs) Sound like barking, huh? I did not want God to remove all my defects of character. I didn't want God to remove all my defects of character. The things that was killing me, I liked them. And not only that, how would I get what I wanted? I told her I was never working step six. She could just get me right out of there. But what I didn't know is all I needed to do was start. And I was started now. We left, and there was something that I, sh- I had taken my fifth step with the priest that day. But there was something I hadn't told the priest, and I hadn't told anybody. And one day I remember we were in a church session, it was a women's session and she went to the same church I went to, and we were standing in a circle, and the lady said, everybody should have somebody they can tell anything to, and most of us do, even if we don't know it. And I remember looking across the room at her, and I knew I had to share something with her I hadn't shared with anybody. When you make up your mind to do something like that, God will make a way for you to do it. That month that we were going to Gatesfield Penitentiary, it was five women who went. Everybody counseled, except her and I. A three-hour drive one way. And I remember knew, I knew that this was the time that I had to tell her something that I hadn't told anybody. So once we got into the drive real good, all of a sudden I looked over at her and I said, Prince Salton, I need to tell you something. She looked at me real surprised because we were good friends. We talked about everything. But she knew. She said, "Uh uh-oh, this must be the biggie.
1: (laughs) And I went on to
0: tell her that When I was a year sober, I had gotten married. Nobody knew it. I was married then. Nobody knew it. I was commuting to see my husband, and nobody knew I was married. I shared this with her, and I told her all the details, and pretty much I just wanted what I wanted. I didn't want to be married. I just wanted what I wanted, and that's why I did it. And at one year so I thought, well, yeah, I could do this.
1: <laughs> and since
0: he knew me when I was drinking, he thought I was, I was better since I wasn't drinking. He didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this thing will work out pretty good. And it was a real crazy life. I was living like a double life. I'd commute to Chicago, and sometimes I'd get to Chicago days later and make two sets of reservations, one for him, one for me. I'd get there early, and then when he'd come to the airport, I'd be walking through the gate like I had just got there. It was wild. And I I shared it with her, and I thought, I didn't know what she was going to say, but she didn't judge me. She asked me one thing, she said, Avery, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know what I'm going to do about it. All I know is I had to tell somebody. And one of my trips to Chicago, all I wanted to do was get there and I'd take the car and I'd be gone. One day I went to Chicago. He didn't want me to take the car and be gone. We got in a big argument. I got so angry, I walked back to the refrigerator and I got a beer. All of a sudden I thought about the three and a half years it took me to get this two years.
1: <laughs>
0: I put the beer back in the refrigerator and I called her and I told her what had happened. And I said, you know what, I think I'm finally ready to have God remove all my defects of character.
1: <laughs> I said, my
0: life is hurting. She said, I never quite heard it put like that before. I said, well, I don't know how else to put it. It's not like I could take two aspirin and make it feel better. (laughs) I got on my knees that night, and I humbly asked God to please remove my shortcomings. It it was a few months later that I still didn't know what I was going to do about this crazy life I was living. And it took me a while to set it straight, but I knew I had to get a divorce. I had to get out of this marriage I was in, and I did it. And it was hard for me to do it. And that's why I tell people, you know, when I worked the steps, it wasn't easy. They say it's a simple program, and it is simple, but it's not easy. For me, it was blood and tears, and mostly tears. It reminded me of my grandson. He had a a paper from school. And when I picked him up from school, he had did this homework and the teacher said he needed to finish it at home. And I thought, okay, you know, we'll do it when he gets home. Well, when I first looked at the paper, I thought, wow, it looked kind of sloppy. But I I said, if it's acceptable to her, he could go out and finish it. By the time we got home and he started working on this paper, now he's seven, right? He started working on this paper. It started to look worse instead of better. Until the third time he brought it up, he had erased the hole in (laughs) it. So I took the paper. I said, wait a minute. No, I'm sorry. You are not handing this paper in to your teacher. Go downstairs and you have to do the whole thing over. He said, the whole thing? All of it? I said, yes, all of it. So he went downstairs, and he started working on this paper. And when he brought the paper back up, it was a lot neater, except it had this wet spot on it. Well, I wasn't going to mention the wet spot. But right away, he said, those are tears. (laughs) Well, that's the way it was with me. It was a lot of tears. Because my life was real painful to get it in order. And I have to continue to take a personal inventory because as Bill sees it, Bill says, our character defects will return. It's how we recognize them and handle them that show the extent of our progress. I had to really work on that to get my life in order. And when I was about 11 years sober, I was a hairstylist, and I actually I was in school, I was in cosmetology school, and I was working at a salon, and the owner wanted to sell the salon, and I wanted to buy it. She wanted $10,000 for this salon. Well at this time, I've, you know, really got my life straight, and I'm working the steps, I wanted this salon so bad, but I didn't have $10,000. In a week, I had $10,000 in my checking account. I didn't even think about it. I was, <laughs> I had been willing and dealing, and what happened, I didn't even realize that what I was doing, I wanted the salon so bad and I was so afraid I wouldn't get it. And I had asked the guy that I had gotten my divorce from to give me this money. I didn't care what I had to say. <laughs> I lied. You know, we'll get back together. Yeah, if that's what you want.
1: <laughs> you know.
0: And I'm giving him the numbers to wire transfer me this money. Four, five, six. Yes, I love you too. Seven, eight. (laughs) Yes, uh uh-huh. And nine. And I'm giving these numbers out. You know, make sure you get it right. In a week, I had that $10,000 in my checking account. When I got the money, I got home. He had called me. And I thought, he must have called me earlier. I've already talked to him today. I went out, and I celebrated because I was buying in this alarm on Friday. Well, he hadn't called me that day. And he continued to try to call me. And I wasn't talking to him. And all of a sudden, he called me at 5 o'clock in the morning. I picked up the phone, and he was real angry. (laughs) Here I had $10,000, and he hadn't heard from me. And I'm trying to explain and trying to lie and whatever I'm doing, I want to keep this money. And all of a sudden, I felt something go across my neck, a real uncomfortable feeling, and I thought, what is wrong here? And then it dawned on me. It's like I took a spot check inventory and I knew immediately that I had to send this money back. I didn't know how I was going to send it back. I went to school that day, and I was walking through the halls. I was praying, God, please, help me to send this money back. Because I was supposed to close on this deal that night. And I thought, what do I need to send this money back? I need courage. God, please give me the courage to send this money back. And I was walking through the halls. I don't know what kind of look I had on my face, but this guy seen me in the halls, and he looked at me, and he said, what is wrong with you? I said, I have problems. And he said, let it go. He wasn't even in the program. (laughs) And he hugged me. I went at lunchtime. And I remember I I made that call before I went into the bank, and I tried to get him to let me keep this money. And I said, the only way I can keep this money is if you loan it to me and let me pay you back with interest. He said, I can't do that. I said, if you don't loan me this money, I'm going to have to send it back. He said, I can't do that. And I was standing outside the bank, and I walked in the bank, and I told the lady I wanted to send a wire transfer. She proceeded to wire this money back, and as she was setting up the wire transfer, she looked at me and she said, any message? I said, what, I can send a message? <laughs> and I guess she thought, you sending 10000 I said, is it free? <laughs> I guess she thought, here you are sending $10,000, and you asking if the message is free? She said, yeah, it's free. <laughs> I said, so I started thinking real hard about the message I wanted to send them. And all I could think of was these four-letter
1: words.
0: (laughs) And I was thinking so hard, she looked at me and she said, I tell you what, let me finish filling out the papers, and then when I come back to you, you can, you know, put your message in it. And I was thinking, and I didn't want to say what I wanted to say. So finally, when she got back to me, after she was finished, completing the paperwork she said any message? I said no message and I sent that $10,000 back I didn't know how much I had changed until I walked out the bank that day I was depressed for a week (laughs) there there came those tears I was telling you about (laughs) but I was sober And I was at peace. And the the interesting thing about it, a a few months later, I was about to go to the International Convention in San Diego. And I didn't have any money. I didn't know how I was going to go. But I had registered anyway. I didn't know how I was going to get the money. And then my aunt called me from Chicago. She had been in Atlanta. I hadn't even seen her. And she said, Avery, I'm in Atlanta. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to see you while I was here, but I'm leaving tomorrow. But when I leave, there'll be a cashier's check in your mailbox for $10,000. It's from your aunt. And all you have to do is pay the taxes and share it with your sister. You know what I thought about. There it was. All I have to do is be about my father's business. And it's my father's business to take care of me. I always thought I had to take care of me. I always thought I wouldn't get mad. They say that you have to give it away. You have to give this program away in order to keep it. I want to go a step farther and say you have to give it away in order to get it. If it wasn't for even the people I sponsor, they help me as much as I help them. So I have to continue to take that personal inventory and make sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and let God do what he's supposed to do because fear activates my character defects. When I'm afraid I won't get what I want or I'm going to lose what I have, fear activates my character defects. I notice a lot of people when they come into Alcoholics Anonymous, they talk about how they ask God to please help them. That's what I did. I was so sick, I was on my knees, and I was in front of the toilet. And I asked God, please stop me from drinking. Well, I had had said a lot of prayers before then, but it was never like this. I said, God, please get me out of jail. God, please help me find my car. But it was like when I said that prayer, God, please stop me from drinking. Something opened up. And I really believe that it was at that moment that my prayer was answered. And that's why I'm sober today. It's important for me to do 12-step work. When step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, that spiritual awakening is a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. In step two, when I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, I started to rightfully relate myself to God. I didn't know who God was. And if I didn't know who God was, I didn't know who I was. And if I didn't know who I was, I was insane. And by step 12, that spiritual awakening, it was simply I I finally know who God is. I know that it's not enough to believe in God, that I have to rely on God. A lady asked me one day, she said, how did you find God? I said, I didn't find God. He wasn't lost. I was. (laughs) He never went anywhere. I had to learn to rely on God. It's like having a wealthy father. But I don't know he's my father. So I'm living in poverty. God was never lost. Everything depends on my action. I have to act myself into right thinking. I can't think myself into right action. It's what I do that makes the difference. Not what I know. Not what I say. I could say I believe in God. But if I don't rely on God, then I won't get the results. Alcoholics Anonymous has been real good to me and my daughter is also in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I I talk about my two grandsons all the time and, you know, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're here. I was able to give my daughter her 10-year medallion in January. I remember when I realized that my daughter had a drinking problem. I came home one day and there was a pint of Mad Dog 2020 in the
1: refrigerator.
0: I knew I was around. I never drank Mad Dog 2020. And she had just started drinking. And I thought, Mad Dog 2020? I, I I always tease her and say that she didn't she didn't reach bottom. She started at the bottom and went down. <laughs> I started to realize she had a drinking problem. But you see, I was afraid to tell my daughter to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because everybody in my immediate family that I had told to go to Alcoholics Anonymous had died from alcoholism. My mother. I had taken my mother to AA meetings. My brother next to me. So when I realized that my daughter had a drinking problem, I didn't say nothing. Pretty soon she took a geographical cure and moved moved back to Chicago. I tell people she couldn't drink in the same town where I was. And when she moved to Chicago, I was real worried about her. I would hear things about how she was getting arrested, how she was throwing bricks through plate glass windows, some of the same things I had done. I never told her to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what I did do, though? I got on my knees and I prayed. I told God, you gave it to me, I'm giving her back to you. I told the lady that once, and she said, I think I'll say the same thing because my son has a drinking problem. I'm going to tell God, you gave him to me, I'm giving him back to you, but please don't let him die. I said, that's not what I said. I said, God, you gave it to me, I'm giving it back to you. And I went on to do what I do. I was in Orlando, Florida at an international AA Women's Conference. I had gotten two tickets because it was buy one, get one free. And I decided this ticket, I was not going to sell it. I was going to give it to a newcomer that normally wouldn't get a chance to go to this International Women's Conference. So I gave it to a lady, and we went to Orlando. Orlando. I was in Orlando walking, trying to get my bags because the conference was ending like this one, in on Sunday. It was ending, and everybody was rushing, trying to get out the hotel. And I was rushing to the elevator with the bell captain. And a lady came running to me from Chicago. She said, Avery, Avery. And I turned around, and she said, I saw the baby. Because she remembered my daughter from when she was nine years old, and I used to take her to meetings with me. My daughter had came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was able to give her her 10-year tip in January. She celebrates the same one I do, and I was the speaker at her birthday. We had that same international convention here in February, and I, I chaired the program committee, and I was getting ready to leave the conference And that same lady from Chicago, by this time my daughter had moved here to Atlanta. She had been here for about a year. And that same lady from Chicago ran up to me and said, Avery, take care of our baby. The same people who carried the message to me carried the message to my daughter. But I want to always remember what the message was that I heard. I don't want to ever forget the message. Because sometimes when we're in the book and we're talking about there is a solution, I hear people say, yeah, I know the solution. Make, don't drink and make meetings. That's not the message that I got. That's not the message that was carried to Bill W. The message that was carried to Bill was hopelessness, self survey Restitution, prayer, and helpfulness to others. That wasn't the message that Bill carried to Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob was out making a ninth step, making amends the day he took his last drink. He was making restitution. So I never want to forget what the message is. Because sometimes I don't hear the message. Because if somebody would have just told me, make meetings and don't drink, I wouldn't be here today. I would have died from alcoholism. And that's why sometimes, one time a girl came to me, a girl that I sponsored, and she wanted to talk to me about relationships. She was a slipper like me. And I thought it was hard for me to talk to her about relationships when she was dying. I wanted to talk to her about self-survey, restitution, prayer, because those are the things that got me here today. And I don't want to ever forget it because if that message ever changed, We won't know that it's changed until it stopped working. There's a difference between the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of recovery. The fellowship is good because the fellowship gives you hope. But the program give you recovery. The fellowship is something you become a part of, but the program is something you do. And I never want to forget that, because that's the message I want to carry, because that's the message that saved my life. I want to uh, close with reading something from uh, Dr. Bob's last talk. If we remember that our job is to get sober and to stay sober and help our less fortunate brother to do the same thing, then we shall continue to grow and thrive and prosper. If we fail to acquire a spirit of service, we will have missed the greatest gift AA has to offer, the availability to give our sobriety away so to keep it. And that's why I always have to remember God is not asking for my capabilities. He's asking for my availability. He's capable. Thank you.